Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. You'll note on the screen, and and if you print it out or or have the the bulletin pulled up on your phone, it says Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Uh, And indeed, that covers all of the places where the Abrahamic covenant is dealt with, at least as far as it being given. It doesn't cover all the places where it's dealt with. We see it in 22. We see it come up all throughout the Bible. Uh, but these are the places where, where God is either promising, ratifying, or signifying the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham in particular. So those are the chapters we typically associate with the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to read uh, the, the, uh, Genesis chapter 15 this morning because that's where we see the covenant ratified and, and the promises reannounced uh, and all of that. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading right, right at the top of the chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look, or look toward heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Most gracious Father, as we look at your word, we ask that you would strengthen us this morning. By your spirit, would you fill my mouth that I may speak boldly your word, your word of gospel as I ought to speak. Would you, by your Spirit, illumine all of our hearts and minds that we might understand this word and believe it? Father, certainly none of this can be done without the working of your Spirit. 
So be with us now in abundance, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you've heard the phrase, happier than a kid in a candy store. Uh, Another version of that same phrase is, is happier than a Presbyterian minister talking about the Abrahamic covenant. It means the exact same thing. There's nothing that we're going to get more excited about than the Abrahamic covenant, except for maybe if you get us going about like predestination or something like that. But like this is, you know, and the reason for that is, as you know, we're, we're covenant theologians. Like we, we believe that, that the Bible is organized and structured, that the revelation of God unfolds covenantally, and that all these covenant promises aren't just stuck in the Old Testament, but, but define how we understand the story, define how we understand even the New Testament. In fact, we, we believe, as Paul says, that, that when we read these words to Abraham, these words of promise, this covenant being announced, that what was actually happening there was God was announcing the gospel beforehand. That, 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 that this is a, a gospel word that we need to hear. And, and indeed, it is. So as, as I said just a minute ago, the Abrahamic covenant is often kind of talked about in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Those three chapters are kind of the big chapters that deal with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, some people also point to Genesis 22 where following the the sacrifice or or, or the near sacrifice of Isaac, the covenant was confirmed in these same terms. But, But as far as the making of the covenant, in Genesis 12, the covenant is promised. And and in there, in verse 1, we see a host of promises in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 12. He he says, go to the land that I will show you. So so there's this this statement about a land. God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. He says, I will bless you. He says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. So so God sends Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans as this one man with his family, small as it was, and and he says, go to this land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, full of all of these people, and God says, I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give it to your offspring. I mean, it's a a, a phenomenal promise because it's, it's entirely unreasonable. There's, there's no reason for this guy who doesn't have any kids and, and has you know him and his wife, his nephew came with him a lot. He, they hung out for a little while, but then, as we heard in the children's sermon, they, they split up. But it was them and, and whatever like servants and workers they had. That was it. It wasn't like he was leaving with some huge army that was like, here we go to conquer the promised land. No. This was an absolutely audacious promise. I'm going to give you this land where all these people, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the, the Rephaim, all the, I'm going to give you that land. And we see these promises are, are really kind of centered around two things. I'm going to give you offspring, and I'm going to give you land. Th- those are the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. He promises, or he says in Genesis 12, I, I will bless you, and, and you're going to bless the nations, and, and all of that. And, and certainly that's wrapped up in the work of Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all the nations, and that through that the, the Gentiles were hearing the gospel, Paul tells us. But as we look at chapter 15 and chapter 17, the, the two kind of constituent parts, the, the two con- constituent parts of these promises are promise of offspring and promise of land. That's, that's the promise. So we have this covenant 
promised, foretold in Genesis chapter 12. Then in Genesis chapter 15, it, it seems that, that, that Abram kind of gets nervous about these promises that God has made. And he wants to know, how am I going to know this happens? Because see, there's this interesting problem for Abram looking at these promises. It wasn't just that, hey, you're sending me to a land full of people and you're telling me it's somehow going to be my land. I mean, that's enough to throw most of us off the scent right there. But there was this other problem. God was saying, I'm going to do all this for your offspring. But as you know, if you know the story, Abram and Sarai didn't have any kids. In fact, they couldn't have any kids. They struggled with, with fertility, that they weren't able to have children. Her womb was closed. So God... Abram wants to know, how exactly is this going to work? He comes up with a plan. Eliezer, one of my servants from my household, he will be my heir. I, I will kind of adopt him. He'll get everything. The promises continue to be great, you know, fun, all of that. And God's like, no, that's not how this is going to happen. And he reiterates, your, your own offspring, someone from your loins, your Kid, your very own son shall be your heir. They didn't have any kids. Adopted or biological. They had no kids of their own by, by, by any means that this promise could be fulfilled through. So Abraham has questions. God, God I want to know, I want to know how you're going to do this. And, and so God takes him through what, what in the ancient Near East was a relatively common covenant-making ceremony. He tells Abram, look, go get all of these animals, cut them in half, spread them out. Now, what would normally happen in this kind of ceremony is a couple of things. Uh, or it could happen in a couple of different ways. They, they might tie their leg together and kind of do a three-legged race between all of these bloody pieces. They might just lock arms. But one way or another, the parties of the covenant would symbolically walk between all of these cut-up animals in order to say, essentially, if I break the terms of this covenant, let it be done to me, as was done to these animals. Not a light, not a light oath that you're taking. Let me be cut in half and, and, and thrown out on the ground, right? And, and so Abram would have known what was about to happen. Because when, when we read ancient Near Scripture and we look at all the nerdy stuff, we see that this is a completely normal, it's just like us going, you know, to the, the loan officer's office and signing a contract. It's that normal. This is just how they did it, right? That's why Abram doesn't seem at all freaked out about what he was asked to do here. But then something weird happens. The sun's going down and a deep sleep falls on Abram. And, and, and the way it's written, it's not that like Abraham went to bed. Something happened to Abram here. He, he was caused to go to sleep. A dreadful and great darkness fell on him. And then the Lord starts making these promises again. Know for certain, your offspring will be so... And, but, he, but he adds to the promises. But if you, if you read here, these promises that he adds aren't great. 
right? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land not their own. Okay. And will be servants there. Less cool. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is not the kind of promise that you want. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they say, serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, well, it ends on a high note at least. As for you, you're going to die at a good old age, and I'll bring you back here. The, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I've got a question mark. The Amorites had to do something. We don't know what it was, but in God's sovereignty, that something else had to be done by them before all this could go down. And then the sun goes down, and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, this, this theophany, this physical manifestation of God appears and passes between the pieces of these animals by itself. Abram's asleep on the sidelines. Now, now think about this. Think about how thoroughly all of these promises in this covenant, how thoroughly all of this is placed exclusively on the shoulders of God. First, Abram's not even awake for the actual content of the covenant. Then, when he's still asleep, God appears and passes between the pieces by himself. There is no Abram saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal, let it be done to me as was done to these animals. It's, it's God taking that blood oath on himself. If, if I don't keep my end of the deal. In other words, all of this depends on God keeping his promises to Abram. The whole thing, every promise in here depends on God keeping his promise. Verse 18 tells us, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he lists all the people that already live there. Highlighting just how audacious this covenant is. And so we see, again, that there, there's all these different promises. Your very own son shall be your heir. Your offspring like the stars. I give you this land. There's the bit about the sojourning and servanthood and affliction, but then being delivered, and then a repeat to your offspring, I give this. So notice again, the, 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 the promise is really centered on two things, offspring and land. That's the, 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 the central content of the Abrahamic covenant, offspring and land. Well, when we flip over to Genesis 17, here we, we've seen the covenant promised in Genesis 12. We've seen the covenant ratified in Genesis 15, in, in Genesis 17, some people argue that this is a separate covenant. It's not. I'll make my case for that in just a second. Rather, what we see here, this is the covenant, the same covenant, signified. In other words, the sign of the covenant is now given. So we look. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, 
for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And then he goes on and he gives the sign of circumcision as a sign of this covenant. Now notice what the content of this covenant is again. Same two essential parts. Offspring, land. It's the same promise. It's not, it's not a different covenant. It's not a different promise that's being made. Offspring and land. What's being added now, that the piece is being added now, is that a sign is being given. The sign of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin from all the male members of the family. That's the sign that God will do this work. That he will give the offspring and he will give the land. Now, what we see is that the story unfolds through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy through the rest of the Torah. What we see is that that circumcision is is not just a sign of the promises of God, of, of these external things, but it's also a sign of a changed heart, of a heart that has been circumcised, a heart that has been regenerated, that has been made new. So we've got these two basic promises, offspring and land. Now, We need to think about this for just a second. Last week when we looked at the Noahic Covenant, we we want to set this all in the bigger context. Because last week when we looked at the Noahic Covenant, we highlighted the fact that, that God had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. But then when that, what we refer to as, uh, as, as a word that has completely escaped my brain, What, what, I, it'll come It'll come in a minute and I'll shout it out in the middle of a thought that it has nothing to do with. But what we see with Noah is that same promise is made, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but then he doesn't tell them to subdue the land and take dominion. Rather, what we saw was that the very content of the Noahic covenant was, I'll, I'll do that part. I'll make sure that the earth is subdued, springtime and harvest, and all of that continues. Well, now, think about this in this broader picture. Now you've got a dude who has no children and a wife who is barren, and that's who the promises are being given to. And the promise specifically is what? Through you, I'm going to fill the earth. I'm going to multiply you. Your children are going to be the stars of the heavens, sand of the seashore, how it's repeated to Isaac and Jacob. You're going to have a whole lot of kids. You who have none. All of a sudden, what we begin to see is God is taking everything that he has commanded on himself. He's already taken the the subduing of the earth on himself with Noah. Now he's taking the filling of the earth on himself because Abram can't do it. He's literally telling someone, an infertile couple, he's telling them, I've told you to fill the earth. You can't, but guess what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal how how God just systematically takes every command that he's given on himself for us. Because he knows that we can't bear the weight of his commands. So so we see this this layer of graciousness in the Abrahamic covenant, but but we see that this it's just it's grace upon grace because God is is the one that's doing everything. What's Abraham's response to all of this? To believe him, to trust him. And what we're told is that he does, and he's counted righteous. 
Because he believed the promises of God. Now, yeah, we, we look at Abraham and we're like, man, he was great, hero of the Bible, all that kind of stuff. And he was. But he was also kind of a scoundrel. Like the stories between 12, 15, and 17 are really problematic for the theory that Abraham is some grand hero. At best, he's a flawed hero. Because twice he gives his wife away to save his own skin. He, he rejects the promises at one point because like, they're running out of food, and so he, he goes to Egypt and gets sent back by God. He, he doesn't understand how it could possibly happen that, that the great and almighty God who created everything from nothing could give him you know, and, and, and his wife and their infertility a child. And so they're like, okay, well, first he says, how about one of these other dudes that you know, have been brought? No, not Eliezer of Damascus. That's not who I'm talking about. And then they devise this plan. Well, all right, listen, Abram, you and Hagar, y'all hook it up. We'll have a kid through her. That's how all this will work out. And so that's what they do. And God's like, no, not that way either. With your wife, with Sarah, that's how this is going to happen. And so, so and, and the reason I love this, it's the same reason you should love this. It's because it shows us that this couldn't have depended in any way upon Abraham getting it right. Because he repeatedly got it wrong. Repeatedly. I mean, just the way the story is put together is almost comical. Abraham, chapter 12, I'm going to do this thing. Chapter, chapter 13 and 14, eh, we don't really believe you. Chapter 15, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing. Chapter 16, eh, we don't really believe you. Chapter 17, Abraham, I'm going to do this thing. And then it does. He does. He does exactly what he said. I mean, just the way the story flows, it's just like, yeah. This was all God, beginning to end. It was God working out his will for Abraham and for us through this. Now, why do I say for us? Oh, let me back up. I skipped, I skipped a point. So, so I said I was going to make a case for, for Genesis 17 being this one covenant. I've already made that in part by, by pointing out that, that the constituent parts of the covenant are offspring and land, and that that's consistent from 12 to 15 to 17. The other thing, and I think this is really... What, what does it for me is that when we look at how this covenant is passed down to Isaac at, in, in the, the second half of chapter 17, in verses 19 and 21, and then again in verses 26, 1 to 5, and then when we look at how the covenant is passed from Isaac to Jacob in Genesis 28, 12 to 15, we see the exact same thing. Offspring, land, and they're to be circumcised. Right? So we never see... When the covenants are being, we never see it presented as two covenants. It's always the promises I made to Abraham. It's always like presented as one thing. And then when we look at Psalm 105, verses 7 through 11, it, we read, and you see this in other places, but, but Psalm 105 is kind of, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at it. Um, and so it says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed with Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan and to your portion for an inheritance. Offspring and land. But, but this is how this covenant often gets termed. 
as God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Or the covenant that He made with the fathers who are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's always presented as a covenant that God made with them. Never multiple covenants. And even when we get into the New Testament, Paul quotes in in outlining and dealing with and and unpacking the, the gospel bits of the Abrahamic covenant in Romans 4. He quotes from Genesis 17. In Galatians 3, he quotes profusely from Genesis 12 and 15, always making the same point. So the Bible sees it as one covenant. So we should see it as one covenant. Now, as a side note, now then, how do we connect all of this, all of these promises to Abraham? Why do we take them so seriously? Because look, you know, we're Presbyterians. We're the weirdos that baptize babies. I get it. I get that question a lot, right? I know where I live. I live in, in Church of Christ land. I, I live in, in, in the, the Southern Baptist land. I live in Bible church land. This is not Presbyterian land. It's not Anglican land. It's kind of Catholic land, but, but we mostly just ignore them and like pretend like, yeah, we know there's a big church down the street, but let's just not. We should do better at that. So how does this all connect? Why do we take this covenant and, and these promises to kids? Why do we take this all so seriously? So seriously, in fact, that we would say, hey, we think the right way to, to baptize is to baptize our kids, the children of believers, not just believers. Why do we do that? Well, the the reason is simple. Let's flip over to Galatians 3. It's simple and it's complicated. I'm going to give the simple, I'm going to give the simple version this morning. So, you know, Galatians, we've looked at Galatians. We talk a lot about Galatians. And, and because it outlines so clearly the doctrines of justification by grace alone through faith alone, because that's what they were dealing with in, in Galatia, right? The Judaizers had come in. There was some confusion about the role of the law and, and whether you had to keep the law in order to be justified or whether you were justified freely by grace through faith in Christ. And Paul makes this incredible argument for the latter, that we are justified, that is, we're counted righteous, we're forgiven, we're pardoned, we're brought into the family of God, we're counted righteous, We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. It's the gospel. It's why it's good news, right? Well, what's interesting is is, as Paul is dealing with this and building his argument, what he does, uh, beginning in Galatians chapter 3 especially, is he builds the entire argument for, for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on Old Testament passages. Now, if you think about it for a second, he kind of had to because he didn't have the New Testament yet. He couldn't go to John 3.16 and say, see, it didn't exist. But he points back to these passages that we've been looking at to say this is how it has always worked. The gospel isn't new and that it's never been announced before. The gospel, Paul tells us in in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here's the simple case for why we do this, why, why we baptize our children. 
Abraham was believing the gospel also. Abraham was being justified by faith also. And if his kids got the sign of that promise, then why, if we're saved in the exact same way, if it's the same gospel that Paul tells us is being preached to Abraham, that's preached to us, then why would our kids not receive the sign of that promise? That's the simple case. There's much more that could be said, but that's kind of a side note piece here. The bigger piece that I want us to see is that Paul uses these promises to Abraham. Paul uses these promises to Abraham to say, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Just like Abraham, as we're told, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then it proves, the Bible proves, he wasn't righteous by his own doing. It was counted, it was credited to him as righteousness. Just like that, so we are counted as righteous by grace through faith in Christ. So Paul writes this, which which we've read part of before. Brent read it to us. He says, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteous. Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand. And then he goes down, he says, the law is not of faith. The one who does them shall live by them. So so what he's doing is he's contrasting, he's comparing for us the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, which we'll look at next week. And he's saying the promise, that's how we're saved, not by the law. He goes on. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, or referring to one, no, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So here he goes back to this promise to the offspring, quoting Genesis 12, 7, and says explicitly for us in a hermeneutic that I would fail people for, but this is Paul being led by the Holy Spirit, writing the inspired word of God. He makes this really weird grammatical point and says that offspring that was promised to Abraham was Jesus. It's in Jesus that all of these promises are fulfilled. Now, why is that a weird point? Some of you know, because collective nouns are are kind of by, like if I say team, yes, I'm talking about one team, but I'm talking about a group of people, right? If I say offspring to Abraham, especially if I'm saying it in the context that your offspring are going to be like the stars of the sky, that kind of sounds like a lot of offspring. That kind of sounds like offsprings, not offspring singular. But what Paul does, being led by the Holy Spirit, writing inerrant scripture, he makes this point, this typological point. He's employing like theological interpretation on steroids. And he says, the offspring was one, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. All of these promises of land, all of these promises of offspring, they come to fulfillment in Jesus. That's how I'm going to do this. That's how I'm going to keep my promises. It's through Jesus Christ, my son. Now, all of a sudden, we've got this offspring promise, this seed promise, and we start going, wait a minute, we've heard about a promised seed before. 
And we said that promised seed was Jesus also. And, and in fact, it was. Because see, that's what keeps happening. With Adam, they, they mess everything up. And then in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we said, yeah, that was Jesus. Now with, with Abraham, your offspring, they're getting it all. And Paul says, yeah, that offspring, that seed is Jesus. He's the one that secures all of these promises for us. That's why this is good news. That's why this is good news for us. Because the promises of God aren't secured for the people of God by the performance of the people of God. The promises of God are secured for the people of God by the performance of one man, Jesus Christ, and him for all of us. That's why this is good news. He secured heaven for you. He secured life for you. He secured land for you. He secured all the promises of God for you. It's grace. That this is why we can be like Abraham. And God can say, here's my promise in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we can go, I don't believe you. And in chapter 14, we can go, I still don't believe you. And in chapter 15, he goes, but here's my promises for you. Here's how you know it's true. And in chapter 16 of our lives, we go, but I don't believe you. And then in chapter 17 of our lives, he goes, no, but here's my promises for you. And here's my sign that I'm going to do it. So do you struggle like Abraham this morning? Has, has God said to you, here's my promises for you? And you've said, yeah, I don't believe you. I tried to. It sounded great. But then, I don't know, I went to college and sowed my wild oats or walked away or whatever silly things we say. And then he said, yeah, but here's my promises for you. And then we said, yeah, but, but then I got old and, and I was having kids and I got focused on my work and my life and my career and blah, 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 and, and whatever other silly things we say. And then he comes back and he says, no, but here's my promises for you. Do we get it? Do we get it? The good news of the gospel is that God keeps his promises for us. And he does that through Jesus Christ. That's why I can stand up here every week not knowing what most of y'all have done throughout the week, but pretty sure that at least some of y'all have messed things up in your life real good. And I can say to you, here's God's promises for you. And you're forgiven, by the way. The only reason I can do that is because that's what God has done over and over and over through the Bible. And so now I get the privilege of doing that. And you know what? A lot of times I'm talking to myself. That's the good news. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. What's the land that we're getting then? 
If the offspring is Jesus and, and all of those who are united to him by faith, what's the land? Well, well, this is the end of the story, isn't it? When we get to the book of Revelation, what do we see? The new heavens and new earth. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven where there is no more sin and, and, and the, the, the holy land is finally holy. And what we begin to see is, is all of these pictures of that on this earth that were supposed to be pictures but never quite were because they, they were pictures that were being drawn by sinful people all come to fruition and fulfillment when the new Jerusalem is brought down from heaven. And there's no more darkness. There's no more sickness. And there's no more death. And there's no one there that doesn't belong. And only and all of the people that belong to God by grace through faith in Christ. See, the promise is still offspring and land. It's just that as the, as the types have been fulfilled, we see that the offspring is Jesus and the land is glory. Beulah land, as the old hymns call it. That's where we're going. In the meantime, as we're going to sing to close our service today, we're sojourners waiting. But just like there was a promise that Abraham's offspring would be sojourners and servants and afflicted but delivered, so we have that promise. We'll sojourn in a land not our own. We'll suffer. We'll be afflicted. But we will be delivered with great possessions, a treasure that is kept in heaven for us, that's undefiled and imperishing and unfatable. It's grace. It's grace because Jesus has done it all for us. That's the, that's the content. That's the good news. That's what the Abrahamic covenant is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope of the gospel. And we thank you that you say, I'm going to do this. And we don't believe you. And you say, well, no, but I'm still going to do it. And we say, well, I just don't believe you. And you say, but I'm, I'm really going to do it. Because it couldn't happen any other way. By your spirit, make us to believe your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.